Welcome back to Night School, episode 31, uh, the poems of Robert Frost 2. And back with me, as usual, is my esteemed colleague, Miss Wesley Chance. Welcome back, Miss Wesley Chance. Hey, how's it going? It's going well, but we're really burning the midnight oil here. It's, it's interesting. Um, when I was a student, and then a St. John's student, and I saw those tutors have to stay until 10 p.m. at night, those often old men and women, I remember thinking, how is it that they have that sort of that sort of strength to get through, you know, like a seemingly like 14 hour day? And like some some of the tutors like, you know, Mr. Townsend had very long rides back to Baltimore after that and then had to be back at the school the next morning. And it's funny because we're we're sort of doing that ourselves now. Well, in a manner of speaking, I, I don't have a big commute after this. I know you just did your big commute. So. That's true. Uh, I, I think I, I think I overmatched the tutors, uh, not only in my commute via, via my automobile, but, but also the one via my feet and well, soon the one via my mind as well. And so <laughs> claims made, let's, let's uh, go about proving them like scientists. So this is our second poem by Robert Frost. And well, speaking of uh, replacing the, the chaff with the wheat, we appropriately have mowing here, which I believe you were going to take, uh, you were going to take this one. Sure, yeah, again, we're getting this uh, reading list from Poetry Foundation, Robert Frost 101, and this is the first one on their list, actually, although there's a sort of intro paragraph that alludes to how well-known Frost is, and so, you know, that's why, you know, we had to start with The Road Not Taken, but anyway, here's Mowing by Robert Frost. There was never a sound beside the wood but one, and that was my long scythe whispering to the ground. What was it, it whispered. I knew not well myself. Perhaps it was something about the heat of the sun, something perhaps about the lack of sound. And that was why it whispered and did not speak. It was no dream of the gift of idle hours or easy gold at the hand of fay or elf. Anything more than the truth would have seemed too weak to the earnest love that laid the swale in rows, not without feeble pointed spikes of flowers, pale orchises, and scared a bright green snake. The fact is, the sweetest dream that labor knows, my long scythe whispered and left the hay to make. Well, I hate to sound like a typical English teacher, but this is just an absolutely beautiful poem. And I say that very rarely I would say about poetry and I teach all five of the major epics and and I've done not a lot of poems with you here uh Wes but you know quite a quite a few compared to say anybody who's not an English teacher and this I mean I have some real comments to make but I am blown away by the beauty of this poem just uh earnest like my favorite line is of course the fact is the sweetest dream that labor knows and so I want to bring up some biblical imagery here. Of course, you have your Edenic imagery of the spikes of flowers, the snake in the garden, bright green, of course, the sweetest dream being the, uh, the fact that labor knows, so that which comes after the garden, and the fact that which is created, that which is made, is the embodiment of that which is first thought or dream, which seems to be the idea of what man learned to do when he became conscious in sacrificing the present for the future. He learned to by means of causality and his own effort, the sweat of his brow, bring about things into existence that were not there in order to improve his life in the long run. 
which is of course why we get educations now um, and how civilization has expanded. Um, but also multiple times mentioning the scythe, bringing up the grim reaper imagery, the Kronos image, the uh, great reaping at the end of time and revelation, the notion of time being very deep here and in not only the ultimate line, but also the uh, second to the second line. And of course, my goodness, in that first line, we get the wood that hearkening back to, um, you know, an image of not only Dante's Inferno or the pre-Inferno, but also to sort of British imagery with the image of Fay and Elf and uh, with the gift of idle hours. Sort of an interesting comment that a recent scholar wrote about in a book on um, elves and folk religion during the time of Christianity in early Britain in the Middle Ages is that <clears throat> as as the Brits became more and more codified in their sort of Christian religion, their folk religion expanded as well. And uh, there, there always seemed to be people who believed in fays and elves. And so the, the notion behind an elf or a fay is that it leads you off course, like a lotus eater or a siren, that they lead you into a, a land of fantasy and pretend where you never ever, um, where, you, where you never escape from. So it, it, to be in fairyland, as it were, means to be in sort of a land of decadence, like it's a fool's paradise would be the best way to put it. It's like Pleasure Island in Pinocchio. And, uh, and he seems to be expressing through all of this that there is something ineffable without saying it's ineffable, it's invisible without saying it's invisible, that it simply is. So whether what he's expressing is being or, or truth, as he, he says here, anything more than truth would have seemed too weak, or rather truth is the correct house of being and it requires no ornament. Um, this, it just is a very packed poem. So yes, what do you see, Wes? <laughs> uh, yeah, I also I also kind of picked up on that that turn that it takes where he starts talking about the dream. Um, like before that, it seems like he's kind of playing with the idea of the scythe whispering and uh, sort of like the idea of of speech, right? Um, as as a a part of work. And then he sort of picks up on this this idea of the dream, and that sort of carries him through the rest of the poem to think about what uh, that dream would entail, right? So um, that easy gold uh, is sort of like the opposite, right, of the of the labor that he's putting in, where he's presumably getting some kind of recompense for this. Um, you know, he's making a living, maybe. Uh, whereas, you know, the elves. Um, as we learned from Harry Potter recently, if they give you gold, it will disappear um, with the next rising of the sun or, or you know, whatever the rule might be. So that easy gold is, uh, is not gonna last. Um, I think it's Robert Frost who's got the poem about nothing gold can stay that, that mm -hmm. gets quoted in The Outsiders too. So I, I wanna look that up now. I, it just reminded me of that one. Um, but so he's, yeah, really, really interested, it seems like, in time, in terms of mortality and, you know, human life, but, but also in terms of, it seems like, um, you know, what you do with your time, like, do you work or do you sort of idle it away? Um, I really think there could be an element here of him um, kind of confronting Whitman, maybe, because he's doing some mowing and Whitman was all about the grass, you know, the grass sort of growing. Ah, very you know, good. Maybe just like a little dig at a great uh, forebear in American poetry there. Um, he, uh, you know, has a sort of Whitman-esque 
every man sort of tone. Um, I think his language is even more sort of plain and his form, I think it's worth noting as the, um, the selector, the editor of this 101 page notes, this is a, a, a sonnet form, but it's not uh, your normal sonnet. Like if you look at the rhyme scheme, it's quite a bit more intricate than the normal ABAB uh, or ABBA or, you know, it, it does some weird stuff. Uh, it's very interlocking and it doesn't have uh, your normal English sonnet form that's got the um, sort of like three quatrains and a couplet at the end. Instead, it does the more Italian form where, again, more interlocking. It's more like uh, groups of uh, six and eight uh, lines rather than those uh, smaller groups of fewer lines. And so I think he's, you know, reaching a bit here and there, it seems like to get that rhyme to work. Um, you don't really hear it that much as you read it along, but you can definitely uh, kind of pick up on it in places. And and those end words are significant, I think. I think they, they sort of have a, a certain weight to them as a result of, of the rhyme or the structure or sort of the combination of both. And so, yeah, you start to look at those words and you see like, whoa, okay, one, ground, myself, sun, sound. Um, elf is one of them. Flowers is one of them. Snake. And, uh, and then you get your final... Uh, word there to make, which of course is what poet means, right? In its root form. And my, cool. my last name, yes, yeah, Schmid, Maker, Smith. And it's interesting because I do, I, is, I think there are, what, three sorts of sonnet? There's the Shakespearean sonnet, which is, is sort of English. There's the Spencerian sonnet, I think so too, and I think you mentioned an Italian sonnet. Do they have 11 syllables each? Because I was just counting the, this one, uh, the first few lines, and it seems like they're like 11, 11, 13, 12. It's very close. But I also noticed a rhyme scheme in here, uh, but I only started noticing it uh, late. But one with sun, there's like an A, B, C, A, and then ground and sound, speak and weak, uh, rose and nose, snake and make. Did you note that rhyme scheme in there? Or just you mentioning the last words made me notice that. Yeah, well, about the syllables, normally your, your, your normal line in English poetry, especially for sonnets, is, a, is iambic pentameter, so 10 syllables is usual. But I think Frost, even in the, uh, even in the Road Less Traveled poem, uh, he does mess around with that. He, he goes with a few that are a little shorter, a few that are a little longer. Uh, I haven't sat down to count this one out, but I... Yeah, looking at the first few lines, they do look a, a tad long. And actually, as you know, the classic line, like in, in Latin poetry, is a bit longer, uh, usually like 12 or, or more. Yeah, so, well, he's got a, you know, he's got a long scythe. He's got a long line of poetry. Um, and yeah, the, the rhyme scheme is um, maybe a bit more, more regular there towards the end. Um, yeah. You're right. So I, I have two. I have two questions for you then, Wes, and we we can just skip them and go on to other poetry if we want to. But a, do you think who do you think is wielding the side? Is it whoever is the poet of the moment, the person on the cutting edge, as it were? I hope the listeners now understand that metaphor. Um, <clears throat> and um, just in now that we've done some reading of American poetry, and obviously you're very familiar with Spanish poetry or can read poetry in Spanish, which, you know, is more than I can say. And um, I'm fairly um, 
well-versed now in a fairly rigorous um, epic poetry, the dactylic hexameter sort that you mentioned, Greek, Roman, English, and Italian. But um, what do you think of this American tendency that we see in Dickinson, Whitman, and Frost now in small, in small you know, representative sample? Do you consider it vulgar that they change the form? Or do you consider it a robustness of American poetry or something else? No, I, I wouldn't say it's um, a vulgarity to to sort of transform a a form to fit your content. That that just seems appropriate to me. Um, if you're going to write a a poem about mowing, well, I mean, I think Frost is aware that he fits within a very long tradition of of poets of sort of agricultural behavior, um, going way back to the, the Greek and Roman, you know, classic. Yeah you know, that he probably would have studied in school, I, I would guess at that time. But, um, you know, he, he sort of adapts it for his milieu, his audience. And, uh, you know, for all we know, this is, you know, born of uh, an actual experience of his. But I think at least as much, yeah, it's probably born of him reading a lot of poetry, thinking a lot about verse and like how to do something new with an old form, how to do something interesting with a, a classical kind of trope or content. And I, I don't know whether the, the wielder here uh, is any particular person or whether, yeah, you could read it a little more allegorically perhaps, like any sort of um, uh, person who's concerned about like the, what they're doing with their days and whether they're you know, tempted by um, by dreams which are going to leave them ultimately uh, unsatisfied, you know that I don't think that just poets you know feel that way. Probably uh, just about anyone could scare a bright green snake once in a while. Who knows? Well, I think it's so interesting because his claim seems to be that you're dreaming no matter what, and this is sort of a union claim, right? That we all live within a dream, but the the people who stay within their dreams, led off by the the fairies and the elves, they. Uh, they uh, they dream without leaving a mark on the world, without producing a fact, that which is made. They they do not have the sweetest dream, the dream that becomes manifest in reality. It's sort of the crucified God, you know, nailing themselves to a real uh, uh, to a real thing in reality, bringing something about which must decay and die, just as they do. And so, you know, the work of art is sort of a perfect manifestation of what a human is supposed to be. And so, it's like you either dream and your dreams die with you, or you do your best to produce that which you dreamed. And that's as good as you can do, as well as you can do. And that's, that seems to be what Frost is doing. I think, I, I don't know if you agree with this, but it seems as if what, I, what Whitman and, um, and Dickinson and now Frost are aiming at is sort of the performative element of conveying poetry. That there is something in the act itself which is um, invaluable. Like the active communication of the dream or the information within their mind or the synthesis and expression of it is in of itself, um, uh, you know, the most, it's the most connecting thing that humans can do as uh, mental or intelligent or psychic creatures that express themselves with articulate sounds that have significant meaning. Um, <clears throat> and that to share that with someone else is is not just some luxury but the uh, the finest thing that you can do uh, yeah i i think in that sense they are sort of at 
ahead of their time because as more and more tasks can be performed without human hands, then there's only sort of left those things that are peculiar to human existence. And so you're, you're, what you choose to do with your leisure time and how you choose to sort of reflect on that, that free choice that you get to make, that you have the, the great privilege of sort of deciding what to do. And yeah, that seems to be sort of what a lot of these poems are about is the poet reflecting on their process on their <coughs> and on the language with which they're, you know, of course, uh, finding the words for all of these things, which I, I mean, I think that they've contributed a lot to the, uh, the discourse of the, of the sort of question of what's, you know, what's the good life and what is appropriate work for a free citizen or, you know, a man, a woman, as it may, as the case may be. Um, and I mean, it's not like any of these are overtly political poems that we've read or, you know, economic or whatever, but, but that all seems to be embedded in there. Yeah. Um, I think it's very, very relevant. Um, well, you know, and it just no lets me know how superficial my old analysis or interpretation of what poetry was, was it's it I seem to recall that my sort of high school English teacher perception of poetry was that the reason we taught were taught it was to edify ourselves and to know high culture because the imagery is so beautiful but as sort of like a competitive and dominant young man you know an athlete with an athletic perspective I didn't have any time for that nonsense um though I'd say I have much more aesthetic sensibilities now but that's that's not the primary motive of this poetry it's information transmission and transmerit mission of significant experience and a significant way of living by means of imagery. The imagery, uh, that's like the, that's part of the key. That's the gold or the silver key to heaven. Like Peter has, it's the meaning within. It's not the key itself. That's valuable. We're, we're staring at the finger without staring at the moon. If all we see are the images and not the narrative, the, that the images tell together the constellation that the stars make up together which shows us the true form or meaning of what's being expressed to us. And so it's funny, I, I really feel like I was having quite a few revelations yesterday about uh, Final Fantasy VII and what it was really saying and sort of its effect on my own life. And it's funny, I think, I think that's sort of happening here too, Wes. It's funny, it's like my mind is being blown by frost and isn't that just such a cliche? <laughs> Well, then I guess we are doing seminar after all here. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that once you start to get the sense, and it might begin as an aesthetic thing, you know, in the sort of platonic uh, theory that he lays out in the symposium, right, it sort of does begin that way, and you see something beautiful, and then it sort of leads you up a dialectic uh, to, towards truth or whatever. But, you know, right. I, I don't know that that's, I don't know that that's always going to uh, entice uh people who have other beautiful things to go and do. Um, so it's hard to get people into poetry at first if, if they're not seeing it. But, but I think that you can get them into some things. Like you played Final Fantasy VII avidly as a kid. So if there was a class that you had taken at some point about that, who knows, maybe that could have pulled you into the old uh, you know, discussion and, and reflection and, and all that good stuff a little sooner. I, I feel the same way. Like I, I wish I'd had that class as a kid. Yeah, and well, that class is going to exist. And so, you know, I guess, you know, you can either resent the youth after you for having more than you did, or you can accept that you had more than your parents. And even if you didn't, the whole point is to produce more for the generation after. 
you know, if life is but a dream and the scythe is coming, might as well make some wonderful things that perhaps are also beautiful, if possible. Right on. Make hay while the sun shines. That's what they say. Yeah, I love that. That's a fine quote. And so um, just to let the reader, you know, the listeners know, and if they, you know, they really want to have their voices heard, I recently conceptualized sort of an ultimate level course uh, that I'm trying to convince you to do with me. You showed some interest, but we, we were thinking about going through an Italian primer or a Spanish primer or a French primer, but more particularly, potentially a Koine Greek primer, a short one, New Testament for Brit beginners or Wheelock's Latin or a Homeric Greek by far, and then either reading the Iliad and the Odyssey, the New Testament or selections, uh, Cicero and Virgil, uh, Don Quixote and Borges or selected poetry. You're the expert there with Spanish, maybe some LaRouche Foucault and French or something like that. We could think about it. Um, and if we did German, even Faust, that we were thinking about going through and uh, a basic grammar in one of these languages and then attempting one of the poems in their original languages. And um, well, that might be very interesting to do at some point, something we might get started on at some point if we, uh, if we feel up to the task. Yeah, I've, um, I've got a, a lot of sort of admiration for people who study language. And um, I don't think that was another one of those classes I didn't take seriously as a kid, but that in hindsight, I think is one of the most valuable um, for sort of critical thinking, um, understanding how language works is sort of a little easier when you're doing it in a new language. Um, you can sort of step back and think about what's going on rather than just sort of letting it flow naturally as happens in English, uh, if that's your first language, you know. So it, it really gives you a, an incredible perspective, um, which, you know, uh, is valuable for all sorts of reasons, not least because then if you get good enough at it, you can go and actually talk to people in, in that language. And, and that's a, an amazing experience. So, yeah. Yeah, it does seem to be the case that the more, the more you search for information in this world, the more of the world you see, and the more of an adventure life becomes. And if we are intellectual adventurers, and I think a big question in my life still is, do I want to be a man of Mercury in Dante's sense, or a man of the sun, a scholar, or, or potentially a contemplative at some point? And this is certainly a contemplative endeavor. And so this, I think that would be... That would be a masterful undertaking. It's funny. I thought that Final Fantasy VII would be our obra maestra, our masterwork, our, our ma magnum opus. And it's amazing that it's like, well, we're preparing for uh, a yet even greater adventure. Wes, it's like we were Odysseus and now we can be Dante or perhaps, perhaps, you know, we can put ourselves along the side at this moment because there is no Dante or without us at this moment. There is no Whitman without us. There is no Dickinson. We, the living, are the ones who reanimate the dead. And so I suppose we're the ones on the cutting edge. It's up to us to bring about that which is good in this moment now. So, yeah. I just finished, Wes. Uh, sorry if you missed that, but uh, I was basically saying, we're the ones who have to make the gold if gold's going to be made. Oh, yeah. I think I just dropped off the end of that. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. This sometimes happens. It's yeah, okay. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, in any case, I was waxing poetic. And so we're getting, we're, uh, you know, we did what we do and uh, time to go. All right.
All right. I hope that you're uh, able to get a hold of Oldman Oscar tomorrow. I really hope so too. So if the listeners are listening in all the time. We're talking Caesar tomorrow. And I've been listening to the Caesar aud- audio book on Audible. And again, I have to say, I think it's very natural listening to books. And of course, I'm a teacher of literature, but reading is sophisticated, difficult, and unnatural. And I for sure understand that, especially for young people. Listen to it. Audible is a wonderful resource. And I, I, I'm not paid to say that, but they could pay me to say that. And I'd be happy to. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, 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 yeah. We're going to try and talk tomorrow. There's, they, uh, they can be a bit pro- protean. Um, but you know, they're worth it. They're excellent. And I, I'm hoping that they share their rich sources, you know, they are rich sources of information and good friends. And I'm hoping that they come on and they talk about, you know, one of the finest practical men ever to have existed, according to Plutarch, a man who could have been great at speaking, but was great with the sword instead. And, um, who ultimately got what he wanted, which was a quick and sudden death. <laughs> yeah. So until then, or yeah. All right. Enjoy. Thank you.